Come on. Welcome to Money Savage, a savage approach to personal finance. This is George Grumbacher, and the time is right. Welcome to today's guest, the strong and powerful Peter Kelly. Peter, are you ready to do this? Yep. Excellent. Let's do this. Peter is an assistant professor of finance at the University of Notre Dame, whose primary research area is behavioral finance. Peter received his PhD in financial economics from Yale University and is the author of the recent paper, Individual Investor Over Extrapolation. We're excited to have you on. Peter, tell us a little bit about your personal life, some more about your work, and why it is you do what you do. Great, yeah. So, you know, as you mentioned, I'm an assistant professor of finance at Notre Dame. So in the fall, I teach a senior undergraduate course in behavioral finance. And the rest of the time, I mostly just spend it doing behavioral finance research. So I try to think about how does psychology influence our understanding of asset prices, of corporate financial decision-making, and I've done a little bit of work in individual investor decision-making as well. Um, so that's mostly what I spend my time doing. Excellent. So we wanted to talk a lot about your recent research paper, the, um, the Individual Investor Over-Extrapolation. Can you tell us a little bit about what motivated you to focus on that area? Great, yeah. So there's a lot of evidence, in particular survey evidence, that people tend to over-extrapolate. So in particular, after past one-year returns have been quite high in the overall stock market, people expect that you know, for, um, future returns will also be quite high. And this is in stark contrast to what actually exposed returns are. So after past returns have been high, that's precisely when expected returns are low. But people tend to expect much higher returns after past high returns. So there's this strong survey evidence that people tend to over-extrapolate. And you know, this could be a problem if, you know, it's causing poor financial decisions. And so what we decided to do, we decided to look at this on uh, the local level and see are individuals actually acting as if they are over-extrapolating. So in particular, we looked at earnings announcements. And the idea here is very simple. So we argue, and there's some evidence for this, that people tend to bet on upcoming earnings announcements. So they'll bet in the period right before next earnings announcement. The idea being sort of, you know, you bet if you think the next earnings announcement is going to be quite good. Um, you don't place a bet if you don't think it's going to be quite good. And we use past earnings announcement returns as sort of a measure of how good people might think that the next earnings announcement return is going to be. Because if they're over-extrapolating, in particular, if they're over-extrapolating past earnings announcement returns, then if past earnings announcement returns have been quite high, and they might say, oh, well, you know, this is the type of stock that always does really well around earnings announcements, so we'll buy it right before the next earnings announcement. But then if this is over-extrapolation, once the information actually comes out, once it's actually released, then you should see a sharp reversal in the price afterwards. Um, so what we see is you know, consistent with this in the sense that uh, we look at an individual investor data set. So it's a set of all individual investor trades or a large fraction of individual investor trades from 1991 to 1996. And what we see is that people tend to buy stocks right before uh, earnings announcements. In particular, they tend to buy them if past earnings announcement returns have been quite high. So they're going to be much more likely to purchase a stock before its next earnings announcement if the past earnings announcement has been quite high. And then what you see in terms of pricing effects, that there's a sharp run-up in the price right before the next earnings announcement, consistent with the fact that 
individual investors are purchasing the stock right before the next earnings announcement. But then once the information is released, it's consistent with over-extrapolation as we see sharp price declines after the information actually comes out. So people are sort of buying, expecting the stock to sort of exhibit a great earnings announcement again. And then once the information comes out, we see a sharp reversal. So that's sort of you know a quick summary of the paper. That's interesting. And does the reversal take place because the earnings were not as good or it's, it's irrelevant to whether or not the earnings were positive or negative? Well, yeah. So, yeah, so if you condition on uh, whether the earnings were positive or negative, you're obviously going to see a stronger reversal if the, earnings are, if the earnings were negative relative to expectations. But just if you follow a basic trading strategy of um, every single firm that in the past had really, really good earnings announcement returns, I'm going to short it right after the next earnings announcement, regardless of what their earnings announcement says, that's going to have negative alpha. In other words, it's going to have negative excess returns. So, you know, even if we don't condition on what the actual information is, what you see is that this is overreaction in the sense that we see a sharp reversal after the information comes out. So unconditionally, the post earnings announcement returns are negative for these firms that had really, really good past earnings announcement returns that were positive. Interesting. So an example might be and I'm just going to pick a company out of the air. Let's let's use General General Electric or GE. So, over the past three, let's just say three quarters of GE announcing their earnings, the last three have been fairly positive. So, investor A looks and says, "Okay, GE is going to release their quarterly um, earnings statement in two weeks," and so they're going to start buying shares of GE, over extrapolating that because it's been good in the past, it's going to be good again. Am I tracking yeah, that that's, right? sort of, that's sort of the general idea. I mean, GE is kind of a funny example given how poor they've been recently. But, mm-hmm. the, but yes, uh, you know, that's the idea that if you have your really, really good earnings announcement returns in the past, then what you'll see is that people will buy right before the next earnings announcement. And you know, they're pushing the price up. And then you see that they push up the price perhaps too high. And so you see reversal once the information comes out. At least that's the, that's the story that we're promoting. And we see evidence consistent with this. Got it. Okay. And the major flaw in this kind of behavior is that it's not based on any fundamentals. It's not based on the fundamentals of the company. It's just based on, I feel good about this because as of late, the earnings reports have been good. Yeah. So actually, if you look at just the fundamentals, and so if they extrapolate fundamentals, you don't see a strong pattern. You don't really see this, um, you know, sharp run up in the price and then a strong reversal afterwards. So if we instead sort of condition on are they extrapolating sort of earnings actually instead of just the earnings announcement returns, then you don't see a strong of a of a run up and reversal. Um, and so, and, and again, the idea would be that it's over extrapolation again because of the fact that we see reversal afterwards. So. You know, you know, perhaps people are doing it. You know, we're not able to go into people's psyches, but perhaps they are doing it based on what they think the actual earnings fundamentals will be. But again, it seems to be over-extrapolation in the sense that they could, uh, you know, buy it afterwards, for example, at a much lower price. I think in general, it sort of ties with this idea that, you know, people go to the grocery store and if they, you know, if you see a box of cereal, if it goes up, if it doubled in price over the past week, you might be more reluctant to buy it. But when people look at actual investments, if they see that the price has gone up a lot recently, they tend to be more keen to buy it. 
And so I guess in general sort of says this idea that perhaps people are over-extrapolating past returns, thinking that you know, perhaps they will be able to sell it in the future for a higher return and not necessarily focusing on fundamental value. Uh, and the idea that, you know, perhaps you should be buying a company based upon what sort of its sum of future discounted cash flows will be. Right. Actual value of whatever you're interested in buying. What is it? Um, does this, so do you, do you, do you, I, I hesitate to say believe in, but do you think that modern portfolio theory is, is accurate and so what do you mean by modern portfolio theory, I guess, is my question. Modern portfolio theory meaning that all available information is already baked into the price of the stock. Uh, no. I, I mean, I, I, as, as, as a person who specializes in behavioral finance research, I think almost by definition, I have to sort of believe in that there are some sort of price inefficiencies. Um, I think, you know, there's a well-documented literature and there's a lot of evidence on this that the prices are actually wrong. You know, some of the most convincing evidence for this is things like you'll have twin shares, which are, um, you know, companies that have claims to the exact same cash flows but are traded differently. So the most famous example of this is Royal Dutch and Shell. So you have companies that are claims to the exact same cash flows, yet they have different prices. I mean, technically, I think the ratio was three to two, and they didn't trade at the ratio of three to two. But the, the idea is just that if you have a company that has a claim to the exact same cash flows in the future, and you have another company that's a claim to the exact same cash flows in the future, then those companies should trade at the same price. But we have direct evidence that this is not the case. So, you know, if, the, if uh, markets were perfectly incorporating all information, then we would assume that these stocks should trade at the exact same price. But in reality, they don't, which suggests you know, strong evidence of mispricing in the market. And you know, there are other classic examples of this. For example, you'll have things like equity carve-outs, where, uh, you know, perhaps the most famous example of this is uh, Three Common Palm, where Palm came out, uh, you know, so sorry, it was a, <clears throat> a spinoff of, of Three Com, and then Palm ended up trading at a higher value it's then the retained ownership value of 3Com. So 3Com was essentially, the idea was that they were having a negative equity stub value. So P Palm, their ownership value in Palm was worth more than <clears throat> the entire company of 3Com was worth. So these are just sort of classic examples of how the market can't perhaps add and subtract. Um, they just have, there seems to be clear evidence that there is mispricing in the market and um, you know, there's a lot of also studies that show that behavioral biases play a huge role in the pricing of assets and there are inefficiencies in the market. So I guess maybe that was a long-winded answer to a, a short question of, uh, and perhaps the short-winded answer would be that, yes, I think that markets do not reflect all available information in a way that perfectly incorporates price. Got it. And oftentimes that's very difficult to test, but I, you know, what I've tried to mention here is that there are some clear examples where that has not been the case. And so I think, you know, to me, that's convincing. No, I, I agree. I've, I've not, I'm not familiar with those examples, but those certainly uh, illustrate exactly what you just said. So th thank you for that. What, uh, I, I, I know that our, our brains are these, these wonderful tools capable of, of amazing things, but at the same time, they're also capable of helping us make terrible investing decisions. So in this realm of investor over-extrapolation, are there certain biases that are helping us 
to engage in this behavior? Yeah, so my opinion, and I think this is opinion is echoed by a lot of other uh, psychologists and economists, is sort of that it stems from this idea of the law of small numbers. And the law of small numbers tends that we, you know, the basic idea behind it is that we tend to think that things will happen in small distributions. So one idea would be, suppose that we're flipping a coin. We know a coin has a 50-50 distribution. If it comes up heads three times in a row, then we expect that the next one will be tails. So you might say, okay, well, that seems a little bit different from this over-extrapolation that you're talking about. So what's the difference? It is also that in situations where we don't know the distribution, so suppose that we're flipping a coin and we don't really know if it's a 50-50 coin or not, then we tend to over-extrapolate. We tend to think, oh, if we flipped heads three times in a row, then for sure the next flip must be heads as well. Mm-hmm. So when we know the model, we expect that in the small sample it should reflect the true distribution, say a 50-50. So if it comes up heads three times in a row, next time it'll come up, up tails. <clears throat> Whereas if we don't know the distribution, we think that even in a small sample, then we start to learn about what the true distribution is. So if it comes up heads three times in a row, we think, oh, for sure, you know, it must be sort of a very, very biased coin, and next time it's going to come up heads. Or, of course, you actually think about it in a statistical point of view, we don't learn that much from three flips of the coin. Of course, we learn something, but people over-extrapolate how much we actually learn from that small sample. So the same thing could be going on with, you know, in financial markets, people over-extrapolate from a small sample, say, oh, we learned something about this company, and when perhaps we haven't had enough information to actually learn about it, and we make inferences about the future. It's even more bizarre in the case that I talked about in the sense that we're over-extrapolating returns. And returns are also supposed to incorporate future expectations. Um, but that gets a little bit more complicated. I think you know, the general idea that I'm trying to promote is that it all stems from this basic idea of the law of small numbers. That in the, idea, the idea is that in small samples, we expect the true distribution to re- be reflected where in reality we need large samples to see or understand what is the true generating process of, of a, um, some sort of pattern. Got it. Excellent. Well, I think that that makes a lot of sense. And I love that. Ex- I love the analogy of, of flipping a coin because certainly if I flip the thing 10 times in a row and it came up heads, I would bet that the odds of it becoming tails would be way more than it really is. But it's actually only 50%, right? Yeah. <laughs> so... Okay, excellent. Um, well, the the paper that you recently published, I think, is is it's hundreds and hundreds of pages. What what else should I be asking about the work that that I have not yet? Uh, in terms of the work, I mean, and you know, so how does this relate actually to individual investor behavior? So again, I think it co- corresponds down to people should be aware that they have these biases and try to take a step back and think about, you know, how perhaps can I overcome these biases? And so, you know, one common thing that people tell you to do is sort of go to financial advisors. And, you know, the evidence in that is a little bit suspect because of the fact that financial advisors also tend to have these biases. And also, uh, financial advisors tend to also act in their own best interest, which could perhaps even be exacerbating these biases. So one thing I would you know, encourage you to do is find first sort of a financial advisor who also acts as a fiduciary, necessarily acting in your best interest, but also be aware that they might also have these biases, since there's evidence that they also have these biases. And try to think about, you know, could these biases be impacting sort of your financial decision making? But of course, it's not necessarily a bad idea to go and talk to somebody. It's just important to be aware of the fact that 
your advisor um, may not be acting in your best interest and may also be subject to these biases. Um, you know, one of my favorite studies on this was a Boston audit study where they had um, people were randomly assigned to these financial advisors and they came in with a script. And then the financial advisors, they tended, of course, to push them towards funds that had higher fees. Um, if they were getting bigger kickbacks for them, they intended to encourage them to chase returns. Um, so perhaps over-extrapolate. And they tend to push more for these sort of actively managed funds. So I guess in general, my, my advice here would be, you know, think of, if you're just trading on your own, think about how these biases could be affecting you. If you're going to see a financial advisor, you know, first try to make sure that the financial advisor is for sure acting in your own best interest, that he's a fiduciary. And second of all, that, or she is a fiduciary, of course. Um, the, and then you might want to, you know, be aware that they might have biases as well and sort of think about, you know, what could these biases be and how could they be affecting my asset allocation decisions? Because at the end of the day, they are people just like we are. So perfect. Yeah. I mean, so there's some evidence that these sophisticated investors experience these biases to a lesser extent, but there's still a lot of evidence that at the end of the day, they do experience these biases. So, you know, one of the other important biases that I work on that's perhaps more familiar to people is this idea of the disposition effect. The other that people, you know, like to sell it a gain and they don't like to sell it a loss. And, you know, the disposition effect, while it has very strong, you know, behavioral foundations, you know, there's a lot of even neuroscience evidence that supports that it's rooted in psychology. What we see is that it's not just among sort of unsophisticated individual investors, but we tend to see the disposition effect in a large class of investors. So, um, but I mean, the caveat being that we, I think the evidence does point to that these behavioral biases are not as significant in perhaps sophisticated financial um, professionals as they would be in uh, individual investors. Fair enough. Excellent. Well, that is very, very valuable advice right there, Peter. Um, Savage Nation is ready for your difference-making tip. What do you have for them? Yeah, so I guess my difference-making tip would sort of be, you know, similar to what I um, mentioned earlier, just this idea that, you know, when you're deciding what investment to make, whether to purchase an asset, um, try to think about the fundamental value. Think about, is this actually a good investment? You know, would I be buying it at this price? Or should I be buying it at this price and not necessarily think about what past return trends have been in the stock? Um, that can be very difficult to do sort of those technical analysis. And I think at least more logical to me would be sort of thinking about, you know, what's the fundamental of this company? Is it a good buy at this price? Um, and it also sort of write down, you know, if nothing changes, should I, what price would I buy at and what price would I sell at? And then sort of stick to those things. We know there's a lot of behavioral biases that opinions can change over time. And so if you sort of write down what you think the fundamental value is, and if nothing um, important changes in terms of the information structure regarding the asset, then sort of stick to what you wrote down initially. That would sort of be my advice. Well, that is great stuff, and that definitely warrants a come on. Come on! Um, I think that people would really benefit themselves and be very well served by taking that approach when they're making any kind of decision like entering into a real estate transaction with buying or selling a home can be so incredibly emotional and I think that if they just had a plan for here's how much we're going to sell it for and obviously we'll take more money if people want to give it to us but not to get wrapped up in in emotional swings so that is good stuff thank you very much well, Peter, thank you so much for coming on. Where can Savage Nation learn more about you? 
Um, I guess, you know, they can, if they type in Peter Kelly in Notre Dame into Google, I'm sure my website will show up. Um, and I have more information on my website about sort of the other papers that I'm working on, things like that. So. Excellent. Well, Savage Nation, if you enjoyed this as much as I did, show Peter your appreciation and share today's show with a friend who also appreciates good ideas. Thank you again, Peter. Great. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. And until next time, keep fighting the good fight because we're all in this together. What's up, Savage Nation? Please support the show by subscribing, leave us a review, and definitely feel free to share us with somebody you think would like it. Come on!